2: This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theatre, and the author of Center, Center. Take a seat in the Front Row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Arthur Pita is an award-winning choreographer and director. He has created for the Royal Ballet, San Francisco Ballet, Paris Opera Ballet, and many more. Arthur has created works for ballet stars Edward Watson, Natalia Osipova, Ivan Vasiliev, Sergei Palunin, and more. His own company, Ballo Arthur Pita, has created evening-length works and performed and toured all over the world. He is an Olivier Award nominee, and he has choreographed for films such as Ex Machina, Jupiter Ascending, and Charlie's Angels. I adore Arthur. In this episode, he and I talk about his current project, an expansion of the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, his work with ballet's biggest stars, and the challenges of creating during times of social change. I appreciate his candor as we discuss difficult and necessary topics. Arthur is a fascinating creator, and I can't wait for you to hear his interview in this episode of Front Row. Arthur
3: Pita, welcome to Front Row. Thank you so much, James Whiteside. <laughs>
2: How's it going today?
3: It's going very good. Today is a day off, which is nice. There's things to do, but it's, it's nice. I can go at a pace.
2: And tell me where you are and what you're doing.
3: Uh, I'm in Houston, Texas, and I'm currently working with Houston Ballet, which is, so far is a total delight.
2: Incredible. What are you working on?
3: Um, so it'll be for a triple bill. Um, and there's a Stanton Stanton Welch has made a piece he, he's reviving called uh Red Earth, and there's a Mark Morris piece called The Letter V. And then, uh, I've been commissioned to make a new ballet which is called Good Vibrations.
2: Ooh, that sounds like something we all need. So for all of you out there, a triple bill is when you have three different pieces or ballets on a program. Mm -hmm. And uh, triple bills are often a really great way to get new audiences involved in the ballet, uh, as opposed to something like going to see Swan Lake or Romeo and Juliet or Sleeping Beauty. They can be a little bit more modern, a little bit more contemporary leaning and appealing to a younger audience. So tell me about Good Vibrations.
3: Okay. So, you know, this was supposed to happen in 2020 and then we all know what happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was literally like, I think like, I think it, I, so COVID hit in March and I think I was supposed to come in like April, May or something. And so of course everything got pushed and postponed. And I actually thought, I thought, oh, this is really sad. I think it's going to fall off the shelf, you know, mm. um, but at that time, um, I had just done a piece with Access Dance Company, um, which is called Alice in California Land, which is kind of about, uh, you know, a homeless, um, woman who, you know, drug addiction and falls down kind of a pit. And it was sort of like dark and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all that, all that kind of imagery. Um, so I really had the need to do something like a bit fun and, and, and light. And, yeah. uh, when Stanton approached me, he had said that he, we had done, um, the Unbound Festival together for San Francisco Ballet. That's okay. how we met. And he just emailed me and he was like, I really, really liked your ballet. Um, would you like that to come? That was the
2: Bjork piece, right? The
3: Bjork ballet. Yeah. Would you like to come and create something? And I said, like, of course. So I kind of thought, well, okay, let me, let me kind of go in the similar spirit. So mm. I've always loved, um, the Beach Boys song. It's always been my little go-to every now and then uh, because the song is so. Even though it's so simple, there's so many different sections to it, and it's so layered, mm. and it's it's sort of quite unpredictable. Even though it's familiar, you you kind of go, oh, it's going there now, and it just keeps changing. It's so. Um, okay, uh, it's like a it's like one of the first big production songs, you know.
2: Mm. I find when songs have sections, it lends itself so well to choreography because you can have different groups come out, a solo here and there, and you really feel like you're not getting bored watching the same thing over and over again.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It lends itself to all of that. And uh, I mean, I must say the hardest thing, though, which I'm going to face this week, I think is always the chorus. Because when you have such a famous song that everyone Mm -hmm. knows, and it's like, what do you do to the chorus you know because without it looking naff you know you have to kind of try and oh. think of something so i'm going to try how
2: and... long is the song is it is that all you're doing that one song this
3: no so um this is how the whole thing developed so initially um i approached uh, christopher austin who is an orchestrator and i said do mm-hmm. you think you can take the song and turn it into like a sort of 25 minute uh, 30 experience Mm. where we uh, kind of interlace the song with the orchestra and we kind of tease it out. And he was like... Fabulous. Absolutely. So I was kind of going to aim for this kind of like fantastical kaleidoscope, um, you know, world was the initial idea. And then, of course, COVID happened. And I started thinking about the song a lot. And uh, Chris kept saying, oh, do you think there's any is there any kind of narrative and I'm going, no, it's really, we really have to do this. We have to make a feel good ballet. That's like 25 minutes. And like, Mm -hmm. it's just abstract, just feel good. Like, you know, I just want the audience to have like a rest, but we kept like trying and like finding out different sections. And then, uh, and then of course I think everything happened and, you know, it was such a complex time and we lost uh, in my family we lost our grandmother who was 93 at the time uh that's okay and you know the thing is that it, the, the the realization was that it sort of it was okay because she had her family all around her um, her children you know just very she didn't hmm. she had a very good life she was only really ill for like the last 3 months you know and was she was it a covid related illness well she actually weirdly had covid and recovered wow Uh, but she'd had a stroke. So in a way, she was, I mean, she was a real toughie, you know, she was so resilient. But of course, you know, time comes and when you're, you're, you know, 93, I mean, it's like, that is a full life, you know? So there's some, there was something very lovely and dignified. And, um, and of course, you know, I was talking to my my mom about it. And what happens is when, when you, um, with a lot of people, even I know with like other people that I've, um, been with through the process of dying in hospital um, is that they start to see when are they getting close they start to sort of see people from the past mm. um, they're sort of like coming to them they're like oh that person like my grandmother was saying oh I saw my you know she saw her husband my grandfather and she saw her son mm. that she had lost and she was like oh I, I, I could see that they sort of they're waiting for me you know they're ready for me to come but I was I cut, and then I started looking at the lyrics of the song because it's all about, um, a woman and really it's a beautiful celebration of women because, um, the lyrics of the song are all about this woman who's giving, uh, who's giving him good vibrations and excitations and elation. And, um, and she's some kind of, uh, beam, some kind of light. And I was like, well, what if, she was more than just, you know, a, a pretty lady walking down the beach, which, mm. you know, in this day and age, I wouldn't want to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just started to, and then there was a documentary about Brian Wilson, which has come out recently, which is amazing. Fascinating.
2: I haven't seen and it. He's, Where can I watch yeah, that?
3: You can watch it. I think it's online. I also think it maybe it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's quite fac- He's quite a fascinating man himself. Uh, and he talks a lot about the 60s and that the drugs that he had taken and that he had taken a lot of bad drugs, mm-hmm. which caused, um, I guess, I guess some kind of fusing in the brain. And he started and still to this day, he hears voices in his heads and he has like these kind of like inner demons and he's been through quite a lot of dark, rough times as well as, you know. I'm sure some lovely psychedelic times. Mm. So I kind of want, I kind of like took all of that information in the mix and I kind of thought, okay, let's try and devise something that's a little bit more that we can go a little bit deeper and create some sort of narrative. So what it is now is a kind of a memory piece and it's about an old man dying, uh, on his deathbed and he starts to have memories of, um, his past. So he, mm. he reimagines himself. As a little child on the beach, and we kind of go to the beach in California, and it's this little boy who meets a surfer girl, and they 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 kind of have this amazing connection, and she teaches him how to surf. And then it kind of grows, he grows up and then we see them as young, at no, like two people in the prime of their lives, like mm. 19, 20. Mm-hmm. And she gives them a surfboard as a gift and they go surfing together. And then it kind of becomes a little bit more dangerous and he wipes out and she, he tries to get to her, but she unfortunately drowns. And, um, which also which is also another thing that happened during COVID because I had a friend who lost someone who lost her partner, who did drown, which is, so, which is always such an incredible, it's such a tragic, it's like such a tragic way, I think, to lose someone. And she's, yeah. and it's, it just broke my heart so much. I mean, he was a friend of mine as well. And then, but weirdly that kind of worked its way into the narrative. I don't know how also one of the beach boys, uh, one of the brothers, uh, drowned as well. So weirdly it's just kind of like in this uh, mm. narrative, um, but anyway the, uh, so Sorry,
2: I just want to yeah. take a moment and acknowledge the New York City si- sirens. That's here, right? Not not your end. No, that's
3: your end. Yeah. That's very New York.
2: This is New York. This is what happens when you make a podcast in New York City.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I love it though. I love it. The city is alive.
2: It really is right now.
3: Sorry, I I'm I'm explaining the whole narrative, but basically, um he then he then goes um the old man is kind of like reliving all these moments. Um and then what happens is we start to go into a bit more of a, a fantasy land. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's a section which I'm very excited about, which is called, um, so after she drowns, there's a section of uh, the, where all the women come on, and I'm calling them the cosmic cults. And Marco, Marco is designing the costumes, you know Marco, because you've done Marco yeah, Marco, that's walk the stage. Yeah, yeah
2: that's some homework for my listeners. Uh, Google Marco yes. Marco, and then yeah. uh, take a look at the costumes that Marco Marco did for the Bjork Ballet for San, yeah. San Francisco ballet. For what was the name of that festival again?
3: Unbound festival.
2: And there were about 50 pieces, like 50 new works or something crazy, right?
3: yeah 12 okay. <laughs> but that's a lot hyperbole is a my lot. Thing. yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love that we should they should just do 50 yeah. why not yeah
2: <laughs> so uh what does the cult do
3: so he's designing so the cults come on and they are kind of like the cosmos so like he starts to this is just his transition from the memory world into kind of the afterlife mm. and they're gonna They kind of come on and they're very, uh, so it's very 60s inspired. So Marcos designed the most amazing bell bottoms. So they are walking on with with bell bottoms, but like on point. So the bell bottom, so the legs are looking like like so long. Yeah. Stilt like, exactly. And we're doing a lot of like third, he's drawing on their bodies, like third eye mm. cosmic stuff, which is going to be embroidered, which I'm very excited. And then they're going to be in long, uh, long wigs with a bit of an ombre at the bottom. Mm. And so they, they are like the full thing. So it's, so now it kind of becomes a little bit like Giselle. So they come into, they come into the room. He's still in his hospital bed and he starts to wander around. As if, you know, like like he's floating in the sky. There'll be a little bit of projection of like the the cosmos.
2: And do you have an a young man playing this older man or is it an actual older man?
3: Yeah. So this this is actually now the older man who's Stephen. Uh oh, what's his surname? Who's who's one of the ballet masters and one of the character artists? Oh
2: fabulous wonderful
3: he's just he's brilliant he's just fantastic <laughs> and um and then of course the the drowned lover comes in mm. and so she's kind of like uh and he's trying to get to her so it's a little bit like of an orfeo kind of you know giselle kind of moment mm. she's in a sheath and eventually they have a little bit of a duet with him and an IV drip and her so there's like three of them
2: <laughs> a pas de trois. oh my god a this, pas de sounds, trois. this sounds like a trip I've got to see yeah, those.
3: With, an, with an IV toe. And then uh and then so then he and then he and then he dies. She disappears and then he dies. And then his young self wakes up uh out of the bed and sees his old body, you know, going off. Mm. And he's a little bit like in a no man land. Where you're kind of thinking what's happening. And then what happens is we then, then we enter into the actual song, which, is, which is when we use the song. Cause up now it's just been really orchestral mm-hmm. and Chris Austin has used the song to create the score. So you get like hints of mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. within the thing, but now we get the actual song and the orchestra will play with the song as well, which is going to be exciting.
2: Is it a full orchestra?
3: Full orchestra. Yes. Full. Fabulous. So it's going to be, it's like, it's going to be massive. And, um, which is exciting. And then basically he, he kind of goes to a hippie heaven, um, where, um, where it's like all of them. So I think there'll be like 34, it's like almost yeah. the whole company, 34 of them. In more bell bottoms and more long head wigs, Marco Marco style, yeah, yeah. and then he eventually gets to his lover, like they were on the beach, and then it ends with a with a, a very sort of classical inspired duet at the end as they kind of go into the light. So in a way, it's kind of like I'm seeing it as like a, as a beautiful death, the whole mm. thing. So it's kind of like. Yeah. It's upsetting to see someone on a bed, but which is really funny because, you know, when you have a bed in the rehearsal room, everybody lies on it. Everybody yeah. sleeps on it. You know, yeah. people always use the bed. We have this hospital bed in the, re- in the rehearsal room. No one goes near it because <laughs> it's so triggering, you know, because mm. it's kind of like something you don't want to like, kind of like interact with.
2: Yeah. I mean, having a hospital bed in the room is, is disturbing for a lot of people.
3: Yeah, because it's, it's, uh, it's triggering, but also it's so much. I mean, that image, I think, is so much part of everyone's life now, of everything that we've all gone through.
2: So, speaking of that, you know, you've used the experiences of the past two or three years, and it has completely changed what you wanted to do. And yeah. you, you know, I think about this a lot regarding the pandemic and regarding my knee injury and all this. Yeah. And things have evolved in such a way that I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing the way I'm doing them had it not been for the pandemic, had it not been for a knee injury. And um, I've gained a lot of opportunity through these difficult times. And there's always a silver lining. And I think, I mean, I don't know, you could probably speak to this better, but your piece is probably going to be so much better for, for all of the experiences you've had over the past two years.
3: I think so. I think it'll be, I'm I'm hoping that that it'll be richer. You know, I do wonder about kind of the, the kind of just free flowing, you know, fantastical, you know, sort of fantasy kind of ballet. And, And then when you, when you go in the room and you have to start to create actual steps, I always go, Oh, that would have been like much easier. Cause in a way, this is, this is harder. But, uh, but I'm really, I'm really, really. Excited about the idea. And the thing is, you know, you never know, as you know, when you choreograph, you never know how something's going to turn out. Yeah. You only, you only have a plan and you only hope that it's going to go well, yeah. you know, and that the audience will, will see what you've done with your collaborators and that the thing will come to life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do it, it in a way and, and they, the dancers are absolutely fantastic. Houston ballet. They're very playful. They're very curious. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they love, um, taking on a task. Um, they love absorbing. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And we're having also <laughs> quite a lot of surfboard fun because there's this whole like, um, surfing and how, how do you do, how do you do surfing? Um, and that's turning out to be quite a lot because there's another whole group, um, of eight dancers, eight male dancers who are called the surf spirits. Mm. And they are like the ocean, and you know it's really hard to work with them. And we've been—I've been spending a lot of time with them, just trying to work out how we can, you know, manipulate a surfboard with a person on it and still create the feeling of that we're still part of the ocean. And, yeah. And it's just been really, really lovely, and they've been really game for it because it's you know, I mean, it's all that lifting and all that stuff, yeah. and I feel so bad every time we have a rehearsal. <laughs> but they are just such a great—it's just uh, they've been such a great team, and there's, so that's been quite. Quite a fun!
2: It sounds uh, incredible. I mean, so we'll see. It might be the one thing to get me to Texas. (laughs) Have you been here before to Houston? I have. It's very beautiful. I've been. I've been to Houston, um, and I've been through Dallas. I've been like for one day, so I haven't seen much of, you know, the big country. But uh, yes, yeah, yeah.
3: I haven't either, um, but I did venture out eventually yesterday, and I went to the most beautiful. Uh, it's called the Rothko Chapel, mm-hmm. and basically, it's a it's a church chapel. It's a small, quite a small uh, room, but a beautiful a beautiful building with this beautiful skylight. And there's about sort of maybe sixteen massive Rothkos just mm-hmm. in the space, which are just very very. Mute, kind of like grays or slight purples, just massive, massive canvases, and you just kind of sit there and meditate on them, and it completely makes sense. And I was like, all religious buildings should just have art in them, and I, and, and people can just go in there and be quiet and just, and that that that's almost enough. Hmm.
2: I mean, they sort of do the uh, the stained glass, the architecture, the marble. You know, they they yes. are works of art. Those cathedrals.
3: Yes, but they're always depicting... Um, religious. Images of... Yeah. Yes, yeah. In a way, it was interesting to go into a, a religious place. Space, yeah. But, but there was just, you know, which are the Rothkos, which are just painted canvases. Yes. But then you start to look into them, and you totally start to see things in them, which is really fascinating. You mm. know, if you kind of like trip out into them, mm. and one of them... I, th- I did feel like I saw Jesus. There was like a man with like long hair and I was like, and a beard. And I was like, wow, that's popped up. It's sure. So maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus or Jesus or sure. And in another one, there was totally a penis. There was totally a dick. <laughs> in in the canvas I was like he has totally he has totally made that happen it just stood out more and more and then you know when you you look away and you think if you go back it's still going to be there and I looked away and I looked back and it was still there it was still a massive penis
0: yeah
2: (laughs) everything's bigger in Texas
3: yeah (laughs) <laughs> so I want to exactly. go
2: back back in time a bit and talk about your your origins as a director, choreographer.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um I'd like to know how you discovered choreography.
3: Wow. Uh geez, I think from such a young, young age. Um I mean I used to I you know uh, I used to love dressing up my my cousins my sisters and um creating like little kind of like tableaus mm-hmm. uh and inventing dances uh and i remember my mom had she must have gone to a fancy dress party and she had some kind of like pink chiffon sari kind of thing which was basically a massive skirt like an extended piece of pink chiffon which you mm-hmm. would wrap around you and that was just my absolutely my favorite thing so I would put everyone in that, including myself, and dream up these different uh, these different fantasies. Isadora
2: Duncan numbers?
3: Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, and I think the other person, which is so sad because Olivia Newton-John just died this week, which mm. is just, dick. but I had I, I mean, she was so massive for me at a young age because I used to love. I mean, I absolutely was obsessed with Greece, and I think even more obsessed with Xanadu. And when I got my roller skates, I would totally uh, either dance with a broom, like either roller skate with a broom and pretend like it, it was her, you know, that we were kind of together, mm-hmm. like a, like a mop that had hair, <laughs> um, or or I would channel her and just put put a polo neck on my head, polo neck on my head and just feel like I was her and I would be like roller skating. So
2: you'd put a what
3: on your head? A polo neck.
2: A polo oh, like
3: you know, a, like a polo neck, sir. Uh, oh, you, yes, but you neck. would
2: wear it. Oh, a turtleneck over your head. Yeah, because you
3: know if you, put a tur- if you put a turtleneck, it really stays on. Yeah. So you can really flick. You can yeah. really flick the fabric, oh which feels okay. Like so that was always my go-to uh, sort of wig, and um, and I would and I would kind of play the music because we, I could bring my record player out mm-hmm. into, the, into the into the back garden because my mom basically she also uh, cemented she con- she turned the whole back garden into concrete. Which the time was devastating for all of us because we were like, what's happened to the grass? And yeah. you know, that we, and she was like, no, 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 this is better. We just concrete everywhere. I can't be dealing with our garden anymore. But then it was actually fantastic for my roller skating because I had a whole massive space to kind of roller skate on
2: I think it's so fascinating how, you know, for this podcast, I've been talking to a lot of people who are incredibly creative and they all have very similar origins. You know, they have music or they have materials in their home with their parents and the urge to make something or to express themselves shows itself so early. And and everyone is saying, you know, Oh, I found my mom's good pen and I started writing or something. Or, or, you know, I took her scarves and I made up a dance. It's just so interesting how it's so within all of us to make something.
3: Totally. You know, and it's says things that you want to be. I mean, the first thing, like when I was a kid and I first saw David Copperfield on TV, mm. I was like, I want to do that. I want to be a magician and um <laughs> i just that was it i wanted to be a magician so i think i got like a hocus poker set and my i think we were even looking into kind of like magic school lessons to learn all the tricks yeah. but i had a book and i then i started making magic shows for the family so also my cousins were always involved so you know like one cousin would like hide i would have like a like a box of matches, but he would hide under the table. And Mm -hmm. then I would show them like uh, the box of matches that was empty. And I'd close it and then I would shake it. And I'd say, now listen to it, like shake. And then he would like shake it. And the sound would come from under the table, but it would sound like the matches were. And then I'd say, look, they are empty. And I would like, I had a trick where you would, uh, you'd go to an aunt and you would have like a bra sort of hidden in some handkerchiefs and you would tuck the handkerchiefs into her top and then Uh you pull them out and then out would come in like a big bra, you know, and then everybody (laughs) would like laugh and think that you've kind of magically taken her bra off. Oh my God. Or levitating, you know, if you have like fake feet on the end of two sticks and you put like a piece of fabric over and you hold the sticks, and Uh levitate up. And so it looks like you're levitating. So that was like, so I think in a way, and then that kind of led to choreography and dance, but I think it was always this,
1: Mixture yeah, of theater anyway.
3: and I always love tricks. I still, and I that's, I still love stage tricks. If something, if I see something on stage and I, I can't figure out how they've done it, I, I, I become obsessed mm. because I, I want to know how it's worked. I still don't know actually how David Copperfield flies. I have no idea.
2: Secrets of the trade.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to know that because I've never seen that happening dance which is the ultimate thing right would be to fly.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I I was in Las Vegas last weekend and I was teaching at a at a dance teacher convention and I made the most of my time there and I went to see a bunch of shows and I I took myself to see Ka which is a Cirque du Soleil show. And amazing. I don't I just don't understand how they do it. They put they stick you in a theater and you watch about an hour and 15 minutes of a good time. And they're so strange and it's like a trip, really. And it's so death defying and it just scares the crap out of me. And I loved every minute of it. Yeah. And I thought like, I haven't seen Cirque du Soleil since I was, I don't know, maybe a teenager. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be jaded because I've seen more and blah, blah, blah. And I just loved it. It was outrageously enjoyable and amazing really
3: yeah it's incredible those performers are just unbelievable aren't they like what they do
2: it is death defying
3: yeah and you know my friend uh joey arias he was in the zumanity show Mm, i didn't know that that terry mugler designed and joey was the host when it when it premiered i think he was there for like seven or ten years for ages you know yeah, and it was, and I went to go see it when 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 it first opened. It was mm. great because he'd walk around Las Vegas, you know, with a black umbrella, you know, because he's so gothic, it was yeah. so fantastic. Um, but when I went to go see the show, I went backstage afterwards, and it was what was amazing was that I could see. Them going through, um, they were like the technicians. And they were going through two monitors and watching the show back, and talking through every little moment to make sure that it was safe because wow. their health and safety is so like they are so on track with that. That's incredible. So every single moment they look back at it, they go, "Okay, that's good, that's mm-hmm. working well." Just double checking everything. Yeah, I mean they have had accidents, but yeah, there's a real. um, effort to, to make it as safe as possible.
2: And, you know, another thing that really amazed me is the way they build out the theaters for the specific shows. And, um, you know, just you walk in and you're already in another world. It's not like you're walking into the opera house and you're going to sit in a red velvet seat and look up at the pretty mural. You know what I mean? The whole place yeah. looks like an alien landscape, which I adore. And I, I also went to see the Katy Perry residency performance. And, The costumes and the sets and the theater build, it was so spectacular. And, and she was so funny. She performed it like it was a comedy show. And that was really a fever dream. Like giant mushrooms dance, like a talking toilet. Like it was absurd. Really? Oh my God. I
3: love that. Yeah. It was really, really fun. Does she go in and out? Like. Because they, they do like five weeks, and they go back away, yes. and then they come back. And they yes, do, but okay. I
2: don't know what they do with the theater in the meantime. It's an enormous theater that she was performing in at a new resort, and I thought to myself, well, if she's not performing and that theater's just sitting there, like that's a waste of money, if you ask me, or a wasted opportunity, rather.
3: Yeah. What hotel did you stay at?
2: I stayed at the Planet Hollywood Resort because that's where the the expo and the conference were, and it was fine. You know, I yeah. I mean, naturally, I'd like to be in the presidential suite at the Bellagio, but that's just right. <laughs> something to aspire to.
3: <laughs> I've been there twice, and I've always stayed at the um, the Luxor, which is so fun.
2: They have the gay you pool know. party on Sunday. Did you go to that? They
3: have the. I did, yeah. and were, the funniest thing was, I went to the gay pool party, and it started raining. Like it never rains in Las Vegas, yeah. and it started raining, and they were worried about lightning, so everybody had to get out of the pool. <gasps> And like, and then crowd in the in the hallway, um you know, just by the pool, and then of course that turned into its own party because you know you can never stop the gays. The
2: gays love um, an alternative yeah. moment.
3: <laughs> yes, exactly. But I was like, of all the you know of all the times that everything you'd expect it to rain in Las Vegas and possible lightning, and then there it was. Yeah. But the Luxor was amazing because if you go, uh, if you're staying in the pyramid, if you go to the room, the elevator that takes you to the room, you feel this like. Uh, Incline this diagonal because it moves. So it's a weirdest feeling
2: sensation. I've never been on a diagonal elevator.
3: It's a diagonal elevator. Totally weird. Yeah, fabulous. It's a weird. Las Vegas is a weird place. I'm fascinated by it.
2: I'm fascinated too, and I find it to be the most unashamed sort of novelty city in the world. Yeah, like you go and it knows exactly what it is. And it does exactly that. And it does it better than anywhere else you go. And it really is, it's pure entertainment and it's kind of nasty and and it's just fabulous. I love it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I don't enjoy is how they um, heard people, how if you want to get from one hotel, whatever to another, you have to really. Exit through the gift shop. Yeah. Because the first time I, exactly, before I used to, first time I went to Las Vegas, you could walk on the strip. Yeah. And it felt like a place and you could feel that kind of that, that resonance of the seventies. Yeah. And uh, who were those two magicians? Siegfried who, and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. Exactly. They had their
2: show <laughs> at the Mirage.
3: Yeah. And I saw that actually just like in the, in the, it was maybe in the nineties or early two thousands. Um, wow. But now I just don't like this thing where it just just feels a little bit controlled. You know, I kind of, I wanted to go back to just being like a place that has a street. It
2: never will because now they know.
3: Yeah. Now they know. They want you to exactly exit through gift shop, all of them, every Mm -hmm. gift
2: shop. So also, I think um, because of this this nostalgic feeling that you're missing, they are Mm. actually building out an old Las Vegas area, sort of like with the... There was that Fremont light show and everything, like the Flamingo, all those old places. Uh, They're building out a sort of nostalgic zone. Like a retro zone. Yes. And it'll have the sort of landmarks that were made famous in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but uh, sort of, you know, nostalgified for a future audience. That's a really good idea. It is a great audience. That's a really good idea. Uh, A great idea. Yeah.
3: Yeah. That's a really great okay.
2: idea. We have yeah. talked about Vegas for entirely too long. I'd like to talk about uh, some of the work you've done, uh, not only with big ballet companies, but with some really big stars. Um, you have worked, uh, I've seen, I-, I saw your work with Ed Watson, uh, which was just just unbelievable metamorphosis. And then I know you've worked with Natalia Osipova. Osipova, I don't yes. know how you pronounce it with a an accent.
3: Well, it's actually... Uh- I think I think she says um ossipova.
2: Osipova. But it,
3: I think everybody says I think everybody says um
2: Ossipova. The British
3: say Osipova and Osipova. But I think they I think they just call it Aussie now.
2: Okay. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen that yeah. work, but um I like to know some of the differences in working um with big stars like that versus working for big ballet companies or big theater groups.
3: Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um it's, it's a very different brief. Um, so when the metamorphosis uh, came around, that was really, I had really initiated that. Mm. Uh, and Ed, uh, Ed was at a, at a place where he had really ticked almost all the boxes and done a lot of the roles. So he was, he was, he was in a good place because he was like, he was secure as a principal artist. He had already done a lot, but he was like, what's next? And I, kind of pitched something to him where he was feeling brave enough to kind of trust me and go Mm. with it. And, um, and it, and it turned out really well. And, and I think off the back of that, um, uh, Natasha came in when she uh, rolled into town. Uh, I had done a solo for him actually that she had seen for Mm. it's called Volva Volva, and she'd liked that. So she hadn't, I don't think she had seen the metamorphosis necessarily. And, and then, she, and it was a duet for her and Ivan Vasiliev. And she was like, we're doing this evening and we'd love for you to create a duet for us. So um, when she says, you know, we don't want to do, we don't want it to be classical. It needs to be something else because she says, I, you know, I like to do something theatrical. She likes a narrative. So uh you have to then try and dream up um something that would like serve. Cause you know, it's a very particular thing. Those like starry evenings because the audience have an expectation that they want to see so the, you know, their favourite artists do certain things, mm-hmm. um, but they also want to see them taking a little bit of a risk and doing something else. So you kind of have to meet in the middle with everything. You know, you can't be too crazy experimental,
2: yeah.
3: uh, which I think we were a little bit more with the Metamorphosis. Um, but with that kind of evening with Natasha, that was a little bit more like that. Had, had to go to Russia and New York and, you know, had to sell tickets. Yeah. Um, so, and that was a really fun duet. There was a called a duet I did called "Vakada," um, which was kind of like a kind of a murder story where she kind of it's the reverse. She kind of um, she kills the the runaway groom and uh, doesn't forgive him and kind of um, loves him to death and then dances on his grave. It was great, and Natasha was fantastic at it. Um, <laughs> So, but then, uh, and then, but then when we came to do, and then I did a piece with her and Sergei Polunin, which that was, that was difficult. It was difficult because it, it, everything happening at the same time and, um, and, and their personalities and they were in a relationship and it was just very complicated and Whoa. it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine everything yeah. that's going on yeah. there. I um, mean, and, um, Yeah. Not, yeah. So we all know about, yes. Yeah. Him. Not a fan. No. And I just, yeah. Anyway, it's, so that's, that's kind of one that I wished, uh, I mean, she, she was great in it. Uh, but in a way, like I, I felt like I, I wasn't, uh, it wasn't the best thing. Uh, and it didn't, it didn't really come out well in the wash. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I kind of, I wasn't there. And then, then when we came to do a third collaboration with Natasha, um, she was like, "Okay, I don't want to be on point. I want something really, really theatrical. I really want to go through a role. Uh, yeah. You know what can it be?" And uh, and I just found this book called uh, this Hans Christian Andersen book called um, "The Mother," uh, which is a really like devastating story about a mother who's mm-hmm. um, look trying to chase the soul of her child. And she gets confronted by death, and death gives her the option of, you know, a very ill child or a well or a, a child that might have a, a healthy life, but it, it she wouldn't be able to know which which, which is what. Mm. Um, but obviously it's dealing with a lot of a lot of issues. Uh, and she really, really, really took that on. Uh, her and Jonathan Goddard did that as a two-hander. He played like seven different roles wow. as death. And she played. Um, the character throughout. And she, that was really, I, and then I felt like we really got somewhere, mm-hmm. but also because our relationship had developed and the trust was there more. And she really did, she really did go for it. Um, you know, she was like dancing, like covered in blood and getting into a bathtub and it was mm-hmm. like, and it, it was like looking into a mirror. And it's like, it was, it was very uh, trippy for, and you know, you know, she really absorbs everything. So, mm. so that felt it. great. She totally lived it. Um, so then, you know, and then there's been like others, um, they've just been great. Like, uh, Eric Makamedov, um, who was, who was, I did something for Ivan Putrov, who does an evening called Men in Motion. Mm. And so he's, uh, asked me to, to create a few pieces with some of these, uh, fantastic stars. And, and Eric Makamedov was just, was one of them who was, I think in his fifties mm. and just so brave and Bold and just like went for it, and you know, in the same time, like you know, you want to tease the audience with what, with what he can do, but also yeah. they know that he's not like you know the the, the nineteen year old that he yeah, was, yeah. you know. So we had to like embrace that. Uh, so I kind of I kind of love the challenge, and I love um, the bravery, which I think most most artists always are. I've never really worked with someone who uh, has said, "Oh no, that you know that wouldn't work for." my brand yeah. or whatever you know well, including yourself when we did the tenant i felt like you just really went there and was like okay let's do this and let's do it like 100 and we were lucky enough at that time to have a a real process yeah uh, and th- and that really that really excites me because um it's going somewhere else, but you have all the knowledge that you have from working with a big ballet company and mm. working with all those pieces. But now you can come and do something more intimate, but you're not having to do the rehearsal process where you're doing, um, you know, you're doing a bit of Giselle and you're doing a bit of Swan Lake and then coming in and trying to like go, okay, let's do this improv.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh,
3: which is really hard for ballet dancers. I think when you're trying to, you know, rehearse in your, have your rehearsals throughout the day,
2: Yeah. And you have a hundred different things you're doing. I mean, that process to me was so fascinating and I just had the best time with it. It was so enriching for me. And I think it improved everything I do as a classical ballet dancer. Uh, All that knowledge from that really just changed the way I looked at inhabiting role.
3: Well, I think for me as well, I think every process I, I learn as well. And I think that I got a lot out of that process uh and i think we got in with the tenant i think we got in like just under the wire in terms of the timing of what was happening culturally in the world and i'm very glad we did it and i'm very glad it existed yeah and we did it um fully and we didn't hold back and um
2: i don't think we'll ever be able to do it again though
3: I don't think so. And but, so for you know, my listeners, there, just what we're yes.
2: referencing here is, is a Roland Tapore novel that, um, Arthur created a, a theater, a stage production out of starring moi. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there, the whole, the story is very up for interpretation. And, um, throughout the story, uh, this man sort of goes insane and becomes possessed by the spirit or the idea of the woman who lived in his apartment previous to him who committed suicide. And so throughout, yeah. throughout the play, uh, my character sort of devolves and, uh, feels like he is possessed by the spirit of this woman. He, he loses his mind and eventually ends up committing suicide himself. And, uh, twice, twice. Yeah. So the story. <laughs> It has a lot of different <laughs> ways it can be interpreted. And um, I think, you know, regarding today's, uh, it's, it's really hard to talk about, sensitivity. frankly. Sensitivity. Yeah, yeah, it
3: is hard. To, but, you know, just An today's evolution sensitivity in, on... And
2: gender and yeah. and the way people feel comfortable expressing themselves and the way the government feels, uh, you know, sticks their hands in everything. It's very difficult to talk about a a possession tale like this. And so I think when Arthur's saying, you know, we got in just under the wire, it means like we, we were able to express what we thought this story meant. Um, But I do think we, we can't do it anymore. You know? Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to talk about.
3: It's hard to talk about. And, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this because you you know, because you've been, I've seen that you've been, which I'm very excited about, you've been writing some one man shows and some plays, but there's, so the moment you start uh, writing and dreaming up anything, do you feel like you're, you're questioning and going, Oh, is that, is that going to be appropriate? Am I representing that? Is that, is that going to sit well with people? Because, you know, all stories have, Problems. Yes. Uh, And we live in very sensitive times. It's, and so it's very, very difficult to, to almost do anything because someone's going to be upset about something. Yes.
2: And, you know, in even in the writing of my book, my censorship comes afterward. So I write whatever I want. And then they, you know, the publisher and my editor would tell me where I had made a misstep and I would have to either like truly find a way to justify it or get rid of it because my goal is never to hurt anyone and i want everyone like the whole point of of writing for me is to include people in an, an experience that i've had as opposed to yeah. push people away because of my thoughts or experiences yes so uh, that that was a really great learning process for me because there were things that i would think were hilarious and then my editor would say do you realize what this could infer like how you could uh interpret this and then i'd be like oh crap no i didn't think of that and and that's a really important learning process but it also it's hard to create something with all of that censorship in mind because it's really important to feel free as you're creating but not at the expense of others it's just it's hard but it's worth it
3: yeah you have to kind of rewire your brain and think in a slightly different way to try and um to dream up narratives and uh, exciting narratives and, and try and push, push boundaries. But stay stay within the realms of sensitivity. I mean, I think we will. I think this is a very high point of it, and I think we will. You know, these things always uh, are circular, and we will come come out of it, and yeah. things will get you know will become different in a in a different way. Um, but I think I think it is good that we're going through this, and it is good to question everything that happens. And I and I do, and I'm totally for it, and I totally believe in it. Um, it's just very difficult in terms of, especially like with ballet companies, because everything, the whole art form is being tossed up in the air and questioned, yeah. which is exciting. Um, but then we just also have to question what's, you know, what is of value and what what do we understand yeah. is historical, you know, because I don't think anyone ever intended to hurt anyone ever by what yeah. they've created.
2: I worry that the only relevance ballet has currently is – in its scandal, and and that's very difficult for for me to accept because I've dedicated my whole life to this art form.
3: Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that's a very good, very good point because I think all ballet companies are going through that. There's a big shift of artistic directors. There's going to be a whole new, you know, generation of of, of like big question marks of what's going to happen.
2: Well, the problem is any news is is not about the art any news about ballet is yeah. about you know
3: the scandal the scandals yeah. it's
2: so it just hurts hurts the art form you know
3: which you put so brilliantly in your brilliant song
2: oh yeah <laughs> thank you
3: yeah <laughs> like that just that is it isn't it like that song came from a very deep place
2: yeah i mean i had witnessed a lot of people falling from grace yeah and and that's yeah. hard to To witness and you also wonder when's when's my turn you know i'm trying really hard to be respectful and be good and and you worry that you might be next even though you don't recall having done anything untoward
3: totally you think did oh did i just did i get that wrong i'm so sorry i didn't i didn't realize that that's why yeah you'd be so so careful and i think you have to be careful in the room and but in a good way, you know, and sensitive to people. And I think, which is a good thing, but you do worry, Oh, did I, did I say that? Was that inappropriate for me to say that mm. even though it's kind of being flippant mm-hmm. or joking about something? And is that going to happen? Am I going to get called to the office? And I said, you're canceled and you're out. Mm. You know? yeah. Um, so I, I just feel like I'm very, very aware when I go into the room Yeah. to try and to try to have, um, and awareness and just talk slower and think about what I'm saying. Yeah, Um, Read the room. So that it it doesn't (laughs) come out. Yeah. So it doesn't come out in the wrong way. Not that, you know, I'm not into like going into a room and trying to offend people, not at all. But sometimes you might say something, it might just come out wrong, or you might not realize that that might trigger that might, that someone might be triggered by something. So
2: it's funny, this, this podcast, uh, I've spent so much time talking to the guests, about sensitivity in their work and how the evolution of creativity has happened for them. And it, it I think it's a really hard thing to talk about. And I just appreciate your willingness to speak on the subject. So that's all.
3: Oh, thank you. No, I mean, I think it's important because it's there, you know, you're thinking about it, we're thinking about it all the time. Yeah. And I think it's amazing, even like what the film industry, like all the industries are going through it, the film industry, the music industry.
2: And we ought to be, you know,
3: yeah and we ought to be, and I think it's also, but also in a way like for the ballet world, I'm also like you know, like for example, the whole kind of uh laco um mm-hmm. debate, and I'm like, well, you know, just make a new one then you yes. know, like I agree with just, you, like it's like it's fine, you know, you don't have to try and resolve something from the past, just make something new, and there's so many wonderful uh choreographers out there and creators and people are working in such different ways and working with dramaturgs and working with writers and composers and set designers. And I think we can totally, you know, still hold onto the art form, but just take it in a new exciting direction and not worry about those things that are inappropriate anymore.
2: I agree. You know? It's uh, something that my current boss always says. He says, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater."
3: Yeah, Exactly.
2: So exactly. the baby is is ballet <laughs>
3: yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: and the bath water is very very dirty currently, but you know that's okay <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna fix that we're gonna purify that water <laughs> okay Definitely. Arthur, I really appreciate you joining me today. I'd like to know where everyone can follow you and your work on the internet.
3: Oh okay, so um I'm on Instagram, which is probably the The, the best way to kind of see current stuff. So I think it's just Arthur Peter, Instagram, P-I-T-A. Um, and I also have a website, uh, w.arthurpeter.com, which has just been updated by my wonderful, uh, friend, Greg Cook has been, we've been working on this website like for years and years and years. It's been like this. It's just developed into this thing. So I'm very, very happy with it. And he's done such a beautiful job. And that's it.
2: And when can we see good vibrations on stage?
3: It will premiere on the twenty second of September. At All right, Houston Ballet. Yeah.
2: Well, this may be this may premiere after the premiere of Good Vibrations. So, okay, if, if that is indeed the case, then I encourage everyone to go online and look up some clips and make sure you follow Arthur for new work in the future.
3: Thank you so much.
2: All right. Thanks, Arthur. I just love talking to you. I really appreciate your candor. And I think why don't we go out on this interview with listening to a little clip of Good Vibrations?
3: Oh, that'll be fun.
2: And here we are. (laughs) Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast.